Okay, we are live. Let's go before the Lord and pray again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this hour that you've given us to hear from the testimony of the scriptures, the story of Christ and what he has done to save a people to himself by the way of his own death. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is teaching us the truth of these things. And I pray that he help me to speak that which is true and faithful and to cause these people to hear that which is true and faithful. We honor you, glorify you, and in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, one and all. Again, those who are joining us, my name is Pastor James. Guyo. <laughs> just a reminder, just in case someone may have forgotten. If you are on Facebook, you should have seen a poster of my visit that's coming up in October, 15th of October, to the second week of December, I'm going to be in Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya, the capital city of Kenya is Nairobi, preaching for four days. I'm going to deliver some messages, gospel messages to God's people. And from there, I'm going to be in Zimbabwe again to do the same thing. So be preached, so be praying for me for everything, for safe travels, for preparation, for grace and strength to travel, food, flying, all those things, sickness, <laughs> all kinds of things happen. So be praying for me. But with that, I'm going to need time to prepare for the trip. So you may not be hearing messages from me in the next few weeks. Until I'm gone, I will make a post on Facebook once I am very sure of my dates for Zimbabwe, especially because the, for Kenya, I already know. So for those who listen to our messages who are not on Facebook, if you do not see any new messages, that's what is happening. I am preparing to travel and then I'm going to be gone. And then when I get back, you're going to have a lot of messages to listen to. So I'll be posting new messages. Um, when I get back, that's the expectation. But if you see me quiet for the next two months, I'm okay. I'm working behind the scenes. The messages will come. Okay. You go to the archives and keep hearing. We have a lot of messages there. But be praying for me and be praying for those who are going to come to this conference. This morning we are back in Romans 8. Initially I had wanted to go from Romans 8 verse 1 to 11. Then as I was working the message, I realized that I was almost close to one hour, 40 minutes of content, and I had not gone past verse 4. 
So I'd go back and delete the rest of the verses. And that is saying we are in Romans 8 verses 1 to 4. Apostle Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have one title to the message, No Condemnation in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to encourage people to go back and listen to this message again because there's a lot of detail, gospel detail that needs to be understood. Apostle Paul was a gospel preacher. That's what God commissioned him to be, to declare the gospel of God. So he must end Romans 7 with some good news. But for those, or for the sake of those, at the very back, who did not hear the previous message, we are not shy to go back and speak about some of the things that Paul has discussed. Because it is needful to understand what is going on in the development of the arguments. And that is why I'm not a big fan of preachers, of people who do not work the context of the text. There is always an immediate context of any conversation. And then you have the larger context. And the larger context, the overarching context, is the gospel. That's what Paul is laboring to teach. It is God's righteousness. It is justification by the free imputation of that righteousness apart from the law, apart from any obedience that we may render. And the immediate context is the futility of the law. That's the immediate context of Romans 7. The futility of the law of trying to accomplish salvation by our own obedience to it. That's what Romans 7 is saying. So Paul has given us God's way of doing salvation and said, well, God serves only by a righteousness that is freely imputed. But you have to understand the function 
of the law in the context of this gospel. The law cannot give you salvation. What does the law give? It gives you the struggle that Paul is painting in Romans 7. The desperation, the hopelessness. But to speak of salvation apart from the law, apart from human obedience of any kind, is not something that sinners are willing to accept. Especially those who think they have some righteousness of their own to give to God. They have some righteousness that which, when they remember it, they're like, oh, wow, I remember those days. I was very righteous. <laughs> and I hope God was looking at that. So Apostle Paul has labored to show how sin and law work together to produce death. And saying that this is all this combination could give a sinner. Sin and law is a combination that only has one outcome. Death. Condemnation. No matter the pretense. So Paul has labored to show that the combination of sin and law only produces death. No matter the pretense that people may bring about their own law keeping, about their own obedience. It is the design of God that sin is not restrained by law. It's God who purposed that sin cannot be restrained by law. Why? Because he did not give the law power to restrain sin. What he gave the law to do was to cause sin to be more sinful. That's what Paul is teaching. So sin gets some excitation energy. As we would say in chemistry, sin gets some excitation energy. It is awakened from its slumber at the sight of the law. It's given power to be seen, to be more sinful. But when excited, when sin has been excited, it deceives the person, deceives the sinner into thinking that they can do what the law says to be done. So the language of Paul was, sin takes occasion. It takes advantage. It seizes the opportunity of the law to produce all kinds of evil desire. But those who are ignorant of this matter, they come and give the law a warm embrace, but to their own death. So Paul is arguing the point that the law works the very opposite of what people think it was given to do. The law works the very opposite of what people think the law is supposed to do. This is saying 
The law gives strength to the jaws of a crocodile for it to increase its grip on the prey and then more power to do the death spin, you see, when crocodiles are feeding. The bite and then the spin to tear away. That's what the law was given to do. Increase the power to grip and to cause death. So the smile of a crocodile is not an invitation for a kiss. It is a kiss of death. You try it. So the goodness of the law is not an invitation for you and I to earn life by trying to do it. Just as the handsomeness of Saul, as we have been learning, turned out to be a snare, trouble, death, abuse for Israel, as was that of, of Absalom, as we shall develop later in First Samuel. So that commandment that Paul thought was given to give life, thou shalt not. He found to bring death to his amazement. He thought the commandment was given to give him life, but he found that it actually did the very opposite. It brought death. And Paul has said, because of this, the problem is not the law. The law is not sin. The law remains good, holy, righteous, if you use it rightly. But rightfully means understanding its God-given function. The law is used rightly when it shows the sinner, you and me, their inability to keep it. That's the proper use of the law, to show the sinner that they cannot keep it. It is used rightly if it causes the sinner to say, war is me. I am ruined. I am hopeless. If God requires my obedience to the law for salvation, I am so ruined. The law is used rightly when it shows sin to be what it is, which is a lack of perfection, falling off the standard, failing to meet the standard, failing to meet the mark. And it does that, not just by saying, oh, Sean, you're a sinner, and ending there. It goes a step further by producing death through that which is good. So the death of all men and women is the sure sign of the function of the law. So in sin, being shown to be seen through the law, God is showing himself to be the only one who is holy and righteous. That's the bigger picture. That's the bigger point. God is showing 
his creation, that he alone is righteous. So a distinction must be made between the creator and the creature. The holy and the common. The common is the unholy. A distinction must be made. So when God showed up in Israel, he said, I'm going to teach you the difference between the common and the uncommon. You just do not approach me. I'm going to show you how you're going to approach me. I'm going to have my presence, my Shekinah glory, in the Holy of Holies. And you know it's just going to show up, otherwise it's going to be dead. You're going to show me by way of a tabernacle. That's how you're going to come. And as you enter the tabernacle, not anybody can just enter the tabernacle. There has to be a representative. There has to be a high priest that I have appointed for you to approach. And that high priest cannot come to me empty-handed. They have to bring blood. Bring blood. So as soon as you think about approaching me, look at the qualification of the one who is coming on your behalf, and they have to bring something. They have to bring blood. God is teaching the difference between the holy and the common. So the creature must understand, must be made to understand who they are dealing with. And the problems associated with dealing with a God who is holy and righteous. And that's to say, being elect does not remove the problems presented by sin and law. But election lays the foundation for the elect to benefit from the solution that God has proposed and gave. Election is not the payment of sin. Election was being chosen to be a partaker, to be a beneficiary, being given the legal rights in the future that we may profit from the work of Christ. So election is what set the legal rights for us to benefit from everything that God has given in Christ. So there must be a God-given solution to the sin and law problems if there should be reconciliation. Because we are the common, we are the unholy, so we have to be reconciled to him who is holy. So there must be justification from all things that the law could not justify us from. If there should be a peaceful approach to God, if there should be 
acceptance and not rejection by him. These things have to be settled in the way that God determined to settle them. And the sinner must understand that they are of the dust. They are naturally of Adam. They are carnal, sold to or under sin. This is our natural condition. And when they meet the law, there's no friendship that can develop. There's no good friendship that can develop. Problems begin to show as Paul discovered. He discovered a contradiction between himself and what the law was asking him to do. And he agreed with the goodness of the law. He understood what the law was saying and that it was good. But he found himself wanting. He found himself lacking in the performance of the very good things that he desired to do. He found himself doing the evil things that he hated. He found out that a civil war had erupted in his body. A civil war whose terms of peace could not be met by the sinner. For there to be a truce between the warring parties, Paul discovered that he could not meet the terms of peace. That is the proper use of the law for you and I to discover that left to ourselves, we have no ability to meet the terms of our peace with God. So Paul discovered through the law that there was a principle in him that was creating all these problems. And that principle was the indwelling sin and this sin personified is opposed to all things good, all things righteous. And guess what? It is in everyone born of a woman. And his conclusion was that there was nothing good that dwelt in his flesh. Nothing good or anything that had power to help his cause. And because of this, he found himself captive to the flesh, captive to sin and to the power of the law. And he tried to wiggle his way out of the death grip. His desire, his will was in the right place to do good. But how to do it? The power to do it, he did not find. And so he was in an in, inescapable and suffocating grip that was 
tighter, stronger than that of a python on its prey. You know how pythons kill their prey? By squeezing them to death. With every breath that it tries to take, it squeezes even more. Suffocation. Paul understood that spiritually this was his condition. It was helpless. And so he said, Romans 7.21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Evil and good, both present in him who wills or willed to do good. He found himself with no power to separate the two from each other. That's what he's saying. Evil present with the good. No power to overcome the sin so that only the good would remain. If there was a way for him to separate the two, then he could separate the evil from the good. But he did not find the way, the power, no matter how much he willed to do it. And he said, though I am in this deep, insoluble dilemma, I delight in the law of God according to my mind. And again, Paul was not saying that he was under the law because that would undo everything that he said before. As the Judaizers are quick to falsely conclude, because I have run into a lot of Judaizers who use this verse to say, oh, the believer is too under the law. They do not work the context. Apostle Paul said that. He made that statement so that he could not be charged falsely by the Judaizers or to not be had as if he was falsely accusing the law of unrighteousness. Paul is saying there's no unrighteousness in the law. That's his point. He says, everything else equal, he delights in the goodness of what the law says. He agrees with it. He delights in it. He agrees with God in that respect of the law's holiness and righteousness. But he had a problem that God did not have. Paul had a problem. God did not have a problem with the law. Christ Jesus did not have a problem with the law. Paul had a problem with the law. And that would mean you and I have a problem with the law. Unlike God who is pure and sinless and has no contradiction in himself, Paul is seeing a contradiction in himself. Because of sin. God has no such contradiction in himself. Paul sees another law, another principle operating at work 
in the members of his flesh, going against the very good things that he wants to do. God does not ever have such a contradiction. So Romans 7.23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So the law in his members are the principles of sin. The work of indwelling sin that is working in rebellion to the law of God. And finding himself in this state as he or anyone should, when the law is rightly used, he concluded this about himself. Romans 7.24 Oh, beautiful, handsome man that I am. (laughs) So handsome. My mother made me well. No, that's not what he said. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am has taken a protracted discourse and struggle to get to. 18 verses working his way to this conclusion. It has taken some serious theological building of thought brick after brick to put the understanding of the law in its right place in the mind of the sinner and saying the law is not something for a sinner to mess around with. Paul wants to go to the top of this mountain of desperation or to the bottom of the bottom of this valley with anyone who claims to be keeping the law and to show them what the law is actually saying. What the law is actually doing Everything else said. And the end of it is not pretty. He has elevated the demands of the law to levels that are impossible to reach and has pronounced the sentence or the consequence for failing to reach those dizzying and suffocating heights and said it is prison for me it is hopelessness for me it is death and in this prison one can only lie on their pillow in tears and say oh wretched man oh wretched woman that I am if God really desires my law-keeping for salvation, it's not good. It's not looking good at all. 
for the final diagnosis of the law as the doctor is all wretched man that you are. And the Greek word is translated means miserable and hopeless. Useless. If the law was to be your means to salvation from this condition. Or wretched men. That means they're going to hell. That's the way to say it. And in the law bringing a sinner to the dead end that they may see the sufficiency of Christ alone is what Paul meant when he said this in Romans 3.31. You have to know how to understand Romans 3.31. It's also one of the most favorite verses of the Judaizers who call themselves Reformed to go to. Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The problem is they do not know how to explain it. The context of the gospel. So they run to this as a proof text that the law is still binding on the redeemed. They are still married to it. They do not understand what is being said because they wrestle it out of its larger gospel context. How is the law established through faith? In other words, through the gospel. How do you establish the law? Through the gospel. It is established in the way that Paul has expounded in Romans 7. It is established when it brings death to the sinner. It is established when it causes a sinner to squeal and say, Oh, wretched woman that I am. The law is established when it rightly discovers your sin, amplifies it, and then brings death. So by faith, the righteousness of the gospel, the law is established that it was good, holy and righteous. And that's why Christ came and fulfilled it, every jot and tittle. And being condemned because of our sins, which the law judged. The fact that the righteousness that God accepts is imputed, establishes that God's claims on the sinner through the law, God is making claims on you and I through the law. His claims are legit. 
they are unbendable and they must be honored for the sake of his name. Lest there is death and condemnation. If God's claims through the law are not honored, the result is death and condemnation. So through faith, we establish that the law was holy, righteous, and good because it took God himself in the person of Christ to come and fulfill it and meet all its legal demands on behalf of all the elect. That is the correct understanding. The law has some claims. It has legitimate claims that you and I could not fulfill. So in Christ coming and fulfilling them, that's how we establish that the law was legit. And its claims were legit. And so God has imputed righteousness to us because the claims of the law are legit. Sister cannot do it. Sister Kelly cannot do it. So what is Paul doing by his Romans 7 treatise? What is another way to say what Paul is saying? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 15. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Flesh and blood cannot do the law. Thus flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God or inherit incorruption. So what then? What should I do then? Is there anything that I can do to get myself out of this dead and hopeless situation? Well, there is nothing that you or anyone can do to get out of this situation. There are no steps. Even with Bible verses, there's no prayer, there's no formula, there's no fasting, there's no baptism, there's no program that can help a sinner out of this condition, can get them out of this condition. There's nothing that anyone can do. People need to understand this. That is the point of sin and law. Sin and law were given by God himself to shut up all men and women in sin so that their big mouths may be stopped for all to be found guilty before God. That's Romans 3 teaching. To make all men and women guilty. God desired for all to be guilty. He desired for all to be hopeless. That's why sin came. 
This was by God's design and purpose. Sin was God's purpose. And the law he gave to seal that purpose of bringing all men and women into futility, into despair, that their hope should only lie and only be found in his grace and Christ Jesus alone. That's clear teaching. It's offensive teaching. A lot of churches cannot take this because they have a false God, the false gospel. If you remove God from the matter of sin, if you try to clean up God, like many people are trying to do or are doing so as to remove the offense, you always end with a false God. (laughs) And a false God also leads to a false Christ, a false gospel. So what do we do then? Through the question, what do we do? We have found ourselves in this conundrum that Paul is working in Romans 7. What do we do then? The answer still is, there's nothing that we can do. Someone will say, oh yes, there's something that I can do. I can decide to repent and believe. (laughs) No, you cannot repent and believe. Repentance and faith are not things that you do after eating french fries and some onion rings. Or you can choose which one. Rarely would you buy both french fries and onion rings. The question was always, do you want french fries or onion rings? (laughs) But I'm sure you can get both sides, okay? Onion rings and french fries. I never warmed up to the onion rings. So. <laughs> it's a very message. I just work at Burger King, so I know these things. God alone has a solution to this problem. God alone is he who can do something about it and has done something about it. Repentance and faith are gifts that are caused by God. In all those that God has given the solution. And Paul was introduced to this formula by God. Let's go to Galatians 1, 15 to 16. Galatians 1, 15 to 16. Talking about his own calling, Paul says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and caught me through his grace, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Paul says, The solution to his dilemma was revealed to him 
He did not do anything. It was revealed to him when it pleased God. Look at the timing. When God was pleased. Not when he went to church. Not when he was in the temple. Not when he was under Gamaliel learning about the law. When God was pleased. In the time appointed by God for him to know about it. The God who chose him by grace and called him by or through his grace. Paul was called to God by God. He was called to God through God's grace. Because it is God who calls his elect to himself. It is not the preacher. I do not call anyone to God. I could not call you to God. I could preach for 20 million trillion years. And if God does not call anyone, none will come. That's the truth of it. But when Paul was called, when that happened, he did not consult with anyone as to agree with them to see if this was the correct solution. He just up and left and followed Christ. He did not wait for the program that the church was engaged in. They were building some other big building for the kids' ministry. <laughs> he did not wait for that. He's like, okay, I'm done. I've been called to the truth. And if it means I'm going to worship God in this truth, under a tree by myself, that's what I'm doing. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He said, I did not consult with anybody for their opinion. Once the truth came to me, I up and left. I do not need any approval from anybody. So Paul understood that his situation needed a deliverer, not another list of commandments to do. This is something that we need to hammer over and over. Paul is saying, my situation as a sinner, I I'm done with commandments. Commandments cannot help me. Because he had already done that to no avail. He said, who then shall deliver me from this body of death? He's seeking a person. I need someone who can deliver me. Who has the power over the things that I've just described. And his answer to that question it's amazing and deceptively simple. He said, thanks be to God <laughs> through Christ Jesus. I found my who, I found my answer to my dilemma. That is your solution to your sin problem. It is not in another New Year's resolution it is not doubling down to do better next year. Those are all attempts to deny the sufficiency of the God-given solution. But you see, whenever you come to the simplicity of Christ and the gospel, the simplicity of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, the law keepers are never satisfied with that. Even though they may say things, Jesus, 
they always want to circumcise you with something. Circumcise you back to the law as the Judaizers were trying to do to the Galatian church. They are gluttons for punishment. They do not feel the burden of the law. And people who circumcise you to anything religious, especially, and for a reason that they may find some more miserable company. They want you to be miserable with them. Miserable because they can't find any assurance or salvation. So they'll tag you to anything that they can put the name of Jesus on. And Paul in Galatians says, they do that to avoid the offense of the cross. So they add something else that you have to do to be saved. But Paul explained and then declared the solution. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. Why? You haven't explained anything, Paul. Because there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that to say we are in Romans 8 verse 1, and everything else was introduction. <laughs> you have to have a development of the arguments. You have to f- see the flaw. How did we get to Romans 8 1? It's an answer to the problem that has been discussed before. Therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is, therefore, as a result, now, at this time, no katakrima, that's K-A-T-A-K-R-I-M-A, that is, no punishment, no condemnation for your sins, for those who are in Christ Jesus. This has to be one of the best verses in the Bible. And I know there are many wonderful verses also that express the same truth. But Lord Jesus, what a piece of the best, the most wonderful news after all that Paul has labored to present about the hopelessness of a sinner. Verse 1 of Romans 8 can drive you insane if you really think about the implication of that. It is saying, it doesn't matter the depth of your sin. Whatever you can imagine, as much sin as you can sin, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
<laughs> it's offensive. It's offensive. It's offensive. No condemnation. That is another way to say justification. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Could that be true? Could that be true for you? Knowing everything that you know about yourself. But someone will say, oh, you don't really know me. I have not changed much since I came to Christ. You do not know what I've done. You do not know what I'm doing and where I've been. Could there be hope for me? Brother and sister, stop stopping, reversing where you have been, what you have done, what you do is not what removed condemnation. Whatever you do does not remove anything whether good or bad. It does not cause anything in this transaction because it was never about you or me. It was never and it's not. Not your sin, surely not your goodness. But let us ask another question. To the same Romans 8 1. Was God's declaration, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who stop sinning? Because he could have said that. For those who renewed their vows and rededicated their lives to Jesus, those who were water baptized, those who repented and stopped sinning. Is that in the text as the basis of that declaration of no condemnation? No, it's not in the text. What did God say? Is the basis of the removal of condemnation He says, no condemnation to them that are in Christ. There is therefore now, at this present time, even as you are listening, no condemnation for you because you are in Christ. I know people want to go about trying to convene their own little kangaroo courts that they may condemn themselves and condemn others, especially condemning others who are in Christ Jesus. But God has not invited them to the court session 
they were not even summoned to be on the jury. It is not their judgment to make. And it is a little late to have an opinion in this matter of your own justification before God. You cannot decide this. This is not something that you decide. This is something that is revealed to you. Something that is taught you. They are given conviction by the Holy Spirit that this is what God has already done. No condemnation. And that's why you believe it. This news broadcast is for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means it is not good news for all because not all are in Christ. And this also is very offensive to many religious people who are scattered around the globe. They do not like the part that says in Christ. Because that is too particular. That is too exclusionary. They want it to be this way. They want it their way. No mayo, extra cheese. Extra pickles. They want to put themselves in Christ. They want to make a free choice, a free will choice to be in or out of Christ. They want this to be a universal salvation. They deny God's election of the matter, which election the Bible says was done before the foundation of the world. And if they hold to some form of election, it is an election that God did having foreseen their own faith. God looked through the corridors of time, this very long telescope, and he saw that some people were going to turn and believe in Christ, and thus he chose them. And that is a meritorious faith, and that is not found in the Bible. God denies that and says, Romans 11 verse 5, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to foreseen faith. (laughs) There is a remnant according to the election of grace. According to the election, not just election, election of grace. So election is for the remnant. In every generation, there's a remnant chosen by grace, unconditional to the sinner. A matter that Paul will pick up soon and discuss at length in Romans 9. And says in Romans 9, 10 to 13, we're just going to go there to strengthen the point that election is unconditional. If election is unconditional, then justification is unconditional. 
Thus, there's nothing that he can do to mess it up. Romans 9, 10, speaking to the matter of election, Apostle Paul says, and not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. So you see, there's no difference. It's the same mother, same father. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, so they had not done anything bad, that you would say, oh, yeah, of course, Jacob was raised by grandma, and Esau was raised by my aunt in, I don't know where. So that made the difference. Paul says, no, same mother, same father. Guess what? In the same womb, they grew at the same time, they were twins. Having done any good or evil, which means before they even showed up, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her by God, the older shall save the younger. As it is written, Jacob, if I loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul is saying, election must be of him who calls. Of he who wills. Not of foreseen faith. Not of works, whether good or bad. That his purpose might stand. His purpose must stand. His purpose of salvation by grace alone must stand and will stand. His purpose, not our purpose, not our choice, it must stand. But let's go back again, ask a question for clarity. Did did Paul in Romans 8 verse 1 say, No condemnation for those who believe in Jesus. No. That is not what he said either. Even though all who believe are justified people. And all justified people will come to faith at some point. The condition for the verdict of no condemnation is not based on the sinner coming to the knowledge of Christ or believing in Jesus. Your knowledge of Christ cannot by itself solve the problems that have been presented in Romans 7. They cannot. You can know Christ all you want. You could write 20,000 pages on Christ. That won't solve a thing. Faith and repentance, again, are not conditions that one meets for God then to say. No condemnation. Because to say that would mean that one becomes elect because of their faith. And when they believe, And then their faith 
becomes the condition that they meet before God convenes another trial to remove the sentence of condemnation. Both justification or no condemnation is a declaration by a judge. Not guilty. And if you're not guilty, that is also to say you're righteous in the matter of which you were accused, in the matter in which you had been brought to the courts. And God is saying, you're righteous. Unfortunately, it is taught that way by many in the Reformed sovereign camps because they do not understand the place of our faith in the conversation of the whole gospel transaction. They do not get it. The condition for the declaration of justification is based on in Christ. In Christ. Because the solution to all the problems presented in Romans 7 of sin and law is only resolved in the one person. In Christ, as the surety and substitute for the elect and in his death. Christ alone comes to give solution to all the sin law issues. And so the pronouncement of your righteousness has to be declared in him and because of him. And that alone. Now to the matter of justification by faith. Because it is there in the Bible. The matter is not, is it in the Bible? The question is, what does it mean? In the context of everything that God has revealed. Justification by faith means justification by reason of being in Christ. It is saying forgiveness and being set free by reason of the person in whom God has put you. By his doing, and it is not saying justification, by reason of your believing, or at the time of your believing. Justification happened when Christ was presented to be the propitiation, and that means the satisfaction for the sins of all his people, to be the ransom in a one-time transaction. Not a piecemeal doling out of justification. Justification is not doled out every single day. It was a one-time act. At the offering of Christ. Romans 5, 16.
possible. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. And that is in reference to Adam. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Condemnation came by the one offense of Adam eating from the tree. But the free gift does not just cover your sin because of Adam. It covers even the very many offenses that you have done. Christ covers the A to Z of your sin. So the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So one act, the doing of Adam brought condemnation for all men and women. The obedience of Christ, the one act brought justification by his one act, not conditioned on you believing the one act. The death of Christ on the cross was your justification. When he died, verse 18, still in Romans 5, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. So all men had to go through Adam because of Adam. But that was not the end of the story. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. The all in Adam and all in Christ are not the same. In Adam, it's all humanity. In Christ, it's all who are in Christ, chosen in him. To say the transaction of a justification, just as your condemnation happened outside of you. Condemned in Adam, you were not there. Justified in Christ, you were not there either. But what happened with Christ? How did he become the solution for this sin and the law problem for the elect? Verse 2 of Romans 8. You can see why I had to drop the other verses. (laughs) For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So another law, here as in principle, has been introduced by the gospel. And Paul calls it, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Apparently, there is life in this law of the spirit of life in Christ. It is in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying, Jesus is unavoidable if anyone should ever be saved 
because in him alone is found the principle that gives life. And this principle in Christ has made me free. I was bound in Romans 7. This principle that has been revealed to me has made me free. It has justified me. That's what he's saying. It has set me free from the prison of death and condemnation. It has delivered me from the jaws of the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death is the one that he described in Romans 7 when he said, Thou shalt not covet. The Ten Commandments are the law of sin and death. Because you're going to hear a lot of preachers trying to play gymnastics and say Paul was talking about something different. This is in reference to the Ten Commandments. The Moral Commandments because they are the ones causing him trouble. So I do not care about their opinion. I disagree with them because the law is clearly taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as the ministry of death and condemnation. It is taught there too that it is the letter that kills. Okay, So that is the law of sin and death. But how has that happened? The works mongers on seeing verse 2 also will be pushing for your own obedience through the Spirit. But that is not the argument. I will explain more later. Verse 3 of Romans 8 For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law had something that it could not do. And still cannot do. We know what the law could do. Bring death. But there's something that the law could not do. And its failure was because of the weakness of the flesh. But what was and is the weakness of the flesh? It is sin, as Paul has explained in Romans 7. It is indwelling sin. Sin made and makes it impossible for the law to help a sinner. And the law cannot help a sinner as long as they have indwelling sin. You cannot run to the law for help. It cannot. It's almost like running through a red traffic light and going to the police station to report it. (laughs) And then killing someone in the process. And the cops say, oh, what a wonderful, faithful citizen you are. You can go home now. No, the law cannot help you. It can only send you to prison. It cannot help you. So the law cannot be the way for a sinner to use to approach God. 
to use to make any claims on God. The law cannot be for justification and surely cannot be for, ju- for sanctification. Because if sanctification is required for your perfection, then you cannot get it from the law. So it falls, it is false, it is false that the law is for sanctification. It's false teaching. The law was never the way to enter into and possess God's inheritance. Because as Paul taught in Romans 4, the promise was not of law, but of faith. Let's go to Romans 4, 13 to 15. Romans 4, 13 to 15. For the promise that he, that's Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, through the righteousness of doing nothing. But the law would have asked him to do something. The righteousness of faith is the righteousness of doing nothing. For if those who are of the law are heirs, if anyone who claims to be a lawkeeper becomes an heir to God's salvation, faith is made void, Christ is made void. That's what that is saying. Grace is made void, the cross is made void. And the promise made of no effect. God has no basis to give the promise. Because he can only give it by grace. That's what that is saying. God can only give salvation by grace. Because now to the purpose of the law. Because the law brings about the promise. It doesn't say that. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. So the Holy Spirit says, you have to understand the law. The law was given to bring about wrath. And you cannot have life and blessing from that which brings about wrath. Verse 16, still in Romans 4. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Do you see that? It is of faith that it might be according to grace. So that the promise might be made sure to all the seed. Because if that were left for your law keeping and you were elect, then you could mess it up and not be able to do what the law says. So hypothetically, a few righteous people may be able to make it, but a number of people that God would have wanted to give the promise may end up not having it. So Paul is saying, it is all of grace so that none of those that God elected to salvation will miss it. It's made sure. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, 
who are elect, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Therefore, promise is of faith. Of you and I doing nothing, because it is all of the doing of Christ, in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen, right? That's the teaching of the Corinthian letters. So faith then means of Christ's doing. Faith means of Christ's doing. Because my believing causes nothing. It is an affirmation of my possession, your possession, of those things that God has freely given us in Christ Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things possessed but not seen. Evidence of things not seen. Things owned evidence of things that we possess. Justification in Christ. Our holiness and perfection in Christ is evidenced by our faith in Christ. Faith does not cause these things to come to us. It is evidence of our possession of those things. So if you are still weak, in the flesh because of sin, then the law cannot help you to have all these things in Christ. You and I are too weak for the law, and that's why the Hebrews writer says the law was removed because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Unprofitable. The law is unprofitable to a sinner. Jesus could do something with the law because he was sinless. But you and I, unprofitable. Okay, so what did God do? Let's go to Romans 8. God did what the law could not do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God did some work. He <laughs> did something. And if you were to be asked about your salvation, Caitlin, how do you know you're saved? Because God did. That's all. That's what Paul is saying. Because it's all of God's work. Because God did. What I couldn't do, God did. God did. He provided a solution to the problems caused by the law of sin and death. He sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And many things are being said here. Number one, in Christ being sent, it means he pre-existed his coming. 
You cannot send someone who is not there. Christ had to have pre-existed before you were sent. Number two. And having been sent, he took on another nature. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that is speaking to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, the addition of human nature to the word of God. That is the incarnation. And likeness is very purposeful language and is speaking to sinlessness. He had all the attributes of human nature, but without sin, hence the likeness. He was made just like unto us in every way, but without sin. And that is why he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual man, the heavenly man, Christ Jesus. So God sent his son because he alone could give the law what it demanded of us. Angels, being below God in righteousness, are not perfect enough to work the righteousness of God. And so God took up human flesh that he may be under the law, that he may be made under the law, become a debtor to the whole law, that he may give the law what it demanded of all his elect. And the law demanded the death of the elect because of their sin, that the law needed to be paid, be paid the debt that was owed by, the, by all the ship and that debt given to Christ to pay on behalf of all the ship, that debt needed to be satisfied. But the debt of the law cannot be paid by something that is not perfect. Sin debt cannot be paid by that which is born of Adam. Okay? A baby that is pooped on themselves cannot wash themselves clean. Someone has to do it. That's essentially what God is saying, that you have messed up yourself. You have no ability to wash yourself clean. Someone has to do it. Someone perfect has to do it. Okay? So on account of sin, Jesus was sent. This was his mission. On account of sin, he was sent. His purpose defined. His purpose was not the physical healing and the feeding of people with pancakes for breakfast. Because all those that he healed and fed eventually died, as he said to the Jews in Romans 6, if you remember the conversation, they were asking him to give them some more manna. And Jesus said, well, your fathers ate of that bread and they died. Actually, that conversation is explained more in Romans chapter, not Romans chapter 8, in John chapter 8, John chapter 8. 
But all those for whom he died were perfected, they were made holy, they were justified. And the text of Romans 8 says, on account of sin. Christ Jesus came on account of sin. So you see that sin was such that its solution could only be found in Christ alone. And as I said, sin was ordained of God for the cause of Christ, that he may be glorified, the grace and mercy of God be praised in its removal, in its being putting away, in it being satisfied. And let me make another theological point. God did not send Jesus because the law had failed. Cause and effect is very important. The truth of the matter is, God never meant to deal with sin using the law. He never meant to bring us to his blessedness using our own obedience to the law. By the law, he meant to prove your need for his salvation through Jesus. But using the law as the background. So Jesus came in, in the fullness of time, not as a backup plan. Because if you say Jesus came because the law had failed, then Jesus becomes plan B. Jesus was never plan B. Jesus was always plan A. So everything else was working in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Christ, as Ephesians says, was always God's eternal purpose. Christ Jesus was God's eternal purpose. So when Jesus came, what did he do? He condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? As the law condemned sin in the body of our flesh, Jesus came and did the same thing to sin. He also condemned. He passed a sentence of death on sin in the flesh by way of his death. Because his death was in fulfillment to the law as it was payment to what was owed because of our sin. And where there's no debt owed, there are no debt collectors. You've ever had debt that went to the debt collectors? They will harass you. They'll call you like 10 times a day. But as soon as you have made good on the payment, they stop calling you. Why? Because you have satisfied the debt. So in Christ dying, the law as a debt collector was put out of business. It is no more debt to collect from you. It received whatever you owed from Christ. And this is how Christ condemned sin in the flesh by being the propitiation, satisfaction of the sins of his people. And in condemning sin, Jesus justified all his elect. Because there's no way, 
that he made good on the debt payment and still not justified. Because if Sean is not justified when the payment is made, then he's still condemned. So we cannot accept that testimony that Jesus died and yet the people for whom he made the debt payment still are wallowing under condemnation until they believe there's no way that makes sense. Okay? Jesus cannot go back to the Father empty-handed just as you and I, when we go to the store, we purchase our items, get the receipt, we coming out of the store with the goods that we paid for. So Jesus came and he purchased the church with his own blood. So he's going back to the Father with the evidence that, oh, I redeemed the church that he gave me. And he could not have redeemed without justifying them. It's impossible. Okay? So Christ's mission was to justify all his people from all their sins. And he finished it. The sins of all the elect of all time were condemned, condemned in the one time, in the one place, the death of Christ. And that which has been condemned by God cannot ever rise up again or against you to give testimony against you. So sin, like a convict who is not allowed to vote in any election, has been disqualified to come and make any representations about your sinfulness before God. It's condemned in the flesh of Christ. So it has lost its legal rights to condemn you. It is nothing to use. So remember the equation is sin plus law equals death. So when Jesus showed up, he just did not deal with sin. He just did not deal with the law. He dealt with both sin and law and therefore abolished death and condemnation. Because if you put sin to zero and law to zero, then death is equal to zero. And where death is zero, it means there's life. So the sin has nothing to use because the law is satisfied. And the law has nothing to use to condemn you either because the sin that it would have used is also not there. Condemned, has been removed, has been fully paid for. Okay, let us hear verse 3 and 4 again but with the mind of getting to verse 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Teaching takes time. If you really want to know what's going on, you're going to have to put the time. You have to know what these arguments are saying. The Lord said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If you know what this is actually saying, that's your freedom. In Christ condemning sin in the flesh, the Holy Spirit says, 
it was so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What was the righteous or what is the righteous requirement of the law? Two things that are related. Number one is perfection. Perfection is a righteous requirement of the law. Because cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. That's Galatians 3.10. So the law demands perfection, which you and I cannot do. So that is a righteous requirement of the law. It demands your perfection. Number two, the righteous requirement of the law is death. Anyone and everyone who misses the mark of that perfection must come under its condemnation. So the soul that sins must die. The soul that falls under the mark of righteousness must die, must be condemned. So sin did this. Sin created a debt because we failed to meet the standard. Number two, we failed to make the payment of what we owed. So that needed to be paid. So in Christ coming and dying, the matter was settled. That's the righteous requirement of the law for the presentation of the elect to the Father. The elect must be presented to the Father as holy and above reproach. It must be made before they can be presented to the Father. They cannot come to the Father as long as they have some things that they owe. So the law now has nothing against those for whom Christ died. Why? Because they owe it nothing. If you are the redeemed in Christ, you do not owe the law. That's why Paul said you died to it. But we do not owe the law not because we are doing the law or that we can do the law. As things stand, we still cannot do the law. That's the point that is not being taught correctly. Because a lot of these preachers are saying, oh, now you have the ability to do the law. No, not if the law continues to ask for perfection, which it does. We cannot do the law. It was never ours to do anyway. Because what the Lord demanded, none but Christ alone could give in both life and death. So the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us by reason of Christ's obedience. And that is not saying fulfilled in us doing the law through the Holy Spirit. Us doing the law through the Holy Spirit is not the discussion is not the basis of the judgment of no condemnation. We need to tighten these arguments because many want them loose 
so that they can sneak in their own law keeping. Okay? But the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled for who? Paul says, for us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who are the us? It is the redeemed, the elect, the believers. The redeemed are they who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But what does that mean? What does it mean to walk according to the spirit? The context of Romans 7 will define things for us. Those who walk according to the flesh are those who walk still married to the law. It's undeniable. This has to be the context. They did not die to the law. Those who walk according to the flesh are they who are still under the law of sin and death. That has to be the correct way to understand it. So it is not those who drink alcohol or smoke cigars or party late into the night. That's not the conversation. And one can be a non-drinker, non-smoker, very religious, not commit adultery, and still walk under the flesh. And that means condemned. Those are two, the two categories. So the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 walked under the flesh. Even though by all outward appearances, he looked like one who was walking the spirit. He looked very good in his flesh. He talked about his own righteousness and goodness before the law. But Jesus denied his testimony of goodness. The rich young ruler also walked according to the flesh because he claimed to have obeyed the law by himself. He was lying. So those who walk according to the flesh is not a class of sinful things that a person or people are doing. And say, look at those who are walking according to the flesh. This is not a behavioral category. It's a spiritual category of condemnation. So, Again, walking according to the flesh is a class of people whom God did not translate from the law of sin and death by the death of Christ. They did not make the transition because they were non-elect. So the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled. In those who walk according to the Spirit. But what Spirit? According to the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But what does that mean? How are you walking in the Spirit? I'm walking in the Spirit because I stopped arguing with my wife. <laughs> That's how. People go and talk about the fruit of the Spirit. This is not talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not. 
It's not talking about behavior. It's talking about a category of people. Walking according to the Spirit is walking according to the gospel truth as they have been made to be in Christ. They have been justified in Christ. Everyone who has been justified because they are in Christ by necessity is walking by the Spirit. Those who walk according to the Spirit are they who died to the law that they may be married to Christ. If you are married to Christ, you are walking in the Spirit. Those who walk in the Spirit are they for whom the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in them in the death of Christ. Their sin was condemned in the flesh by the death of Christ. So if your sin was condemned in the death of Christ, then you walk by the Spirit. Christ perfected all those who walk in the Spirit, who walk according to this rule of the gospel, He made them holy. All the elect were made holy by the death of Christ. He justified them. He sprinkled his blood for them. They bear fruit to God by reason not of improved behavior and moral righteousness, but by reason of Imputed righteousness. Because only the imputed righteousness of Christ gives you title to life. The law gives you title to bearing fruit unto death. Let's close this way. Romans 8 verse 1 again. Is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I need to pay attention to the words because God means something by them. Paul said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Don't miss the now. He did not say there is therefore no condemnation. He said there is therefore now no condemnation. And he's saying at this present time, what present time? At this present time of the appearance of the Son whom God sent. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. So when the Son came and accomplished salvation, there's therefore now, in this time, 
no condemnation. In him coming and dying, in him condemning sin in the flesh, in him fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, he lifted up all the elect from the law of sin and death to himself. And when they die to the law in the death of Christ, that is the now time in reference that ushered in their non-condemnation. In other words, the death of Christ is the event and the time that translated all of God's people from death to life, from condemnation to justification, because that's when the transaction was made. In the fullness of time, when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those. To redeem is to set free, is to justify, is to, to perfect. So, that to say, this does not happen when you believe. Your non-condemnation did not happen 15 years ago or 30 years ago. I see that a lot on Facebook. People say, the Lord saved me 25 years ago. They mean well, but theologically they're not telling the truth. It's inaccurate. What they mean to say is God brought me to the truth of Christ 25 years ago. Because your faith cannot translate you from the law of sin and death just because you acknowledge something about Jesus. It was the blood of Christ that translated us from the law of sin and death. God wants us to talk about Jesus in the cross. There are a lot of theological speculations, but the real message that God is and has given is the cross. That the gospel declaration is that everything said, your sin, your struggles, your fears, your weaknesses, not having enough money, whatever issues, know this. But this is a sentence from the king of creation. This is his attitude towards you. No condemnation. And you walk in the spirit. Even on your worst day, as on your best day, you are still walking in the spirit because of that sentence of non-condemnation. We cannot take this matter of walking in the spirit as speaking to your own obedience in mind because that would make salvation conditional. But see what Paul said, he said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ who walk according. So who walk according, people who make that a conditional statement. No, it's not a conditional, it's descriptive. It's descriptive of the people that God has redeemed. Okay? 
So they have not understood what walking by the Spirit means because they have not defined it by the context of the gospel discussion. But for today, and tomorrow, and forever, let us be content by God's grace, and be joyful, and thankful for this declaration. If everything has failed, remember Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those not who love Jesus, because you could never love Jesus enough for God not to say, oh, you're justified. For those who are in Christ. Because he did it all. And God accepted all his work on our behalf. We have been perfected in him, and that is why he is seated on the right hand of majesty on high. Hebrews 1, verse 3, 4, somewhere. Christ is seated on the right hand of majesty on high because he made an end to the purification of sin. His sitting is because he finished our justification. Okay? Amen. We are done. Be careful when I say I'm tired. The messages get long. <laughs> but it's all good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many glorious, wonderful things of our salvation in Christ, the declaration of no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit of the Gospel, the Spirit of the righteousness freely imputed. We honor you for teaching us this truth. We honor you for saving us. I pray that you will implant this truth in the hearts and minds of your people. We honor you for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. I pray God bless you with the message. Go back and listen to it again. Uh, we're going to be packed in Romans 8 for a long while. Too many things to talk about. That's why we put the detail. That's why God puts the detail. If it were up to me, I could not bring as much detail. It has to be God-given, right? So God be praised.